Hello, and thank you for listening to the Stroke SIG podcast presented by the ANPT and APTA. I am your host and fellow neurophysical therapist enthusiast, Marissa Moran. Today, I am joined by the authors of the article in the Neurorehabilitation and Neural Repair 2023 journal titled, A Systematic Review on the Effects of Acute Aerobic Exercise on Neurophysiological, Molecular, and Behavioral Measures in Chronic Stroke, Anjali Siva Ramakrishnan and Dr. Sandeep Subramanian. Dr. Anjali is an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the School of Health Professions at UT Health San Antonio. Her background and training include physical therapy education with a focus on neurological rehabilitation and a doctorate in rehabilitation sciences. Her research aims to develop a comprehensive understanding of various circuits in the brain by using non-invasive brain simulation methods and to develop tools that induce neuroplasticity and elicit clinically meaningful effects for improving motor function. She is specifically interested in using aerobic exercise as a primer to add on therapies for promoting neuroplasticity in stroke and Parkinson's disease. Her research work has been published in Stroke, Scientific Reports, Journal of Neuroengineering and Rehabilitation, and other journals. Some of the tools that Dr. Anjali employs in her research include single and paired pulse transcranial magnetic stimulation and virtual reality. Outcomes from her research will help in integrating cortical priming as a booster to conventional rehabilitation techniques for rehabilitating individuals with neurological disorders. Dr. S. is a licensed physical therapist in Texas and an assistant professor at the School of Physical Therapy, School of Health Professions at UT Health San Antonio. He obtained his bachelor's in physical therapy from GS Medical College and KEM Hospital, Mumbai, India. He worked for a year as a physiotherapist in a pediatric setting in India. He completed his MSc in 2008 and PhD in 2013 in rehabilitation sciences at the School of Physical and Occupational Therapy, McGill University. He was funded by the Physiotherapy Foundation of Canada for his MSc studies and by the Focus on Stroke Initiative in the Faculty of Medicine, McGill University, for his PhD studies. He completed a postdoctoral fellowship in neurosciences in 2016 at the University of Montreal, which was funded by the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada. His research interests include use of virtual reality for upper limb rehabilitation after stroke, motor control, motor learning, non-invasive brain stimulation, and outcome measurement. His current research is funded by the Texas PD Foundation and Center for Biomedical Neurosciences, UT Health San Antonio. He is a board member of the International Society for Virtual Rehabilitation. His current research focuses on understanding the reasons for non-optimal motor improvements in the upper extremity after traumatic and acquired brain injury and use of interventions to optimize motor improvement in the upper extremity. He has published 24 papers, three textbook chapters, and eight IEEE proceedings as the primary senior or co-author. He is currently an associate editor of the neurology section of the journal Archives of Physiotherapy and a member of the editorial board of the journal Brain and Behavior. He regularly reviews manuscripts for journals, including Neurorehabilitation and Neural Repair, Archives of PMNR, and JNPT. Thank you for joining me today to talk about this informative systematic review. 
You two are definitely on the cutting edge of all the really buzzwords in physical therapy right now. So I'm excited to talk to you guys and I'm already excited to see what else you're going to be coming out with too in your research world. To begin, can you each tell us what made you interested in this topic of the impact of single aerobic exercise bout on neuroplasticity markers? Marissa, thank you for having us. It's truly a pleasure to do this podcast and we appreciate your time towards this. During my PhD, I was involved in my dissertation was primarily focused on studying the effects of priming using aerobic exercise. Even an acute bout of aerobic exercise has found to show all these changes in neuroplasticity measures which is why I was interested in kind of following this line of interest. And we decided to do this review and just look at different studies in this area and do a collective synthesis. And how about from you, Dr. S? I just want to second and echo what Dr. Anjali just mentioned, that it's truly an honor and a pleasure to be here. You know, I think this podcast is great. I've listened to a couple of episodes previously, and I love how the information is disseminated to the larger clinical community, which I think is very essential because research cannot just remain in journals. It has to be applicable to the clinic as well. We both believe in that very strongly. And my interest comes from a simple fact that as a physical therapist and now as a researcher, we see some patients who do fantastically well after they've had a stroke in terms of recovery and some who don't do as well. We throw the kitchen sink at them for a lack of a better word. We try everything, all the bag of tricks that we have, and we still fail. So it was a chance conversation with Dr. Anjali on me. And she was like, hey, you know, this is an area I'm interested in. Have you looked at that? You know, I said, I've always wondered about exercises because stroke recovery and exercise for the upper extremity, especially, is not something that you will think about together. But it's truly time for us to come to be thinking out of the box, or as one of my former mentors would say, boxes are created by yourself. You have to just put them down and look out. So we came about this idea and, and I was actually interested and I just supported her. I mean, this was basically her idea and she got me interested and hooked on with this and, you know, some of my others, uh, other expertise in this field. So we just said, what can we do together to try and improve those people who recover a little, but not, you know, a lot. And what can we do to help them further their potential in this recovery? Because we both believe that recovery is not static. It's very dynamic and it doesn't stop after six months. And I'm, no, and I'm sure a lot of the um, our clinical colleagues will agree on that. It's just how can we continue to challenge the system differently? So that's what we wanted to see, whether there was any benefit in combining aerobic exercises as a priming tool, looking at that to see if we can further improve or change the recovery potential to be better for these people. I know it's an area that excites a lot of physical therapists too, and what brings a lot of people into the actual field of physical therapy is how can we do more in terms of priming for them to learn. For those of our listeners who have not read the article yet, this article is a systematic review aimed at examining the effects of a single bout of aerobic exercise on neuroplasticity measures, such as corticomotor excitability, as measured by transcranial magnetic stimulation, molecular markers, including brain-derived neurotropic factor, insulin-like growth factor, and vascular endothelial growth factor, cortical activation, motor learning, and performance in stroke. The review included 16 total articles that met inclusion criteria. Can you explain the different neuroplasticity markers examined in your study? And do they all give different information or are they measuring largely the same phenomenon? Well, we looked at different markers, like, you know, as you said, neuroplasticity markers is because 
when we talk about neuroplasticity, we're talking about this ability of the brain to change. And when we're talking about the ability of the brain to change, we, it, generally we can think about it in terms of changes with in synaptic efficiency on how good are your synapses in communicating with each other. Sometimes plasticity can mean an increase in the number of synaptic connections, which might be good or bad. It means that there's better communication between the synapses or faster communication, like whatever remaining synapses we have, is there faster communication. A good way to think about it is, suppose we are going on a highway, we are driving down a road and a section of the highway is closed. Are they going to optimize the speed, like, you know, trying to, from 35 to 40 miles an hour, are they going to make it 50 miles an hour so that more vehicles, so the vehicles can pass through faster and in one hour we can have more vehicles pass through that? Or do we have some sort of connections which are not used anymore in the brain, but they are present because they are, they are anatomically present, but physiologically silent as what we can call. And because some of the main pathways have shut down or are damaged, can we have these side pathways open? Like again, to go back to the highway analogy, we use a frontage road if there's a problem on the highway. So therefore that's what information like TMS gives us about whether it's faster, whether we are having some of these other pathways that are being used, depending where you are stimulating in the brain and where you are recording and what kind of techniques you wanna use, that will give us that. Although we do not find too many studies which look, but we can also look at structural imaging, which looks at the actual structure of the white matter. I think there were a couple of studies which looked at that, not a lot of them, which also gives us some idea about the anatomical aspects part of it. And we can again see how good are the muscles responding to this information. So again, in terms of EMS, how fast the information is coming down, we can look at the time or the latency as what we call it from when we stimulate to when we see the response and how fast are the muscles responding or how much information is coming down. We can look at the size of the response and that gives us an idea. As Dr. S was mentioning, we looked at studies which used corticomotor excitability, and I'll come to that later. We looked at studies which used different kinds of neurotrophins, which are basically all these molecules that are good for brain health and function in general. And one of the most common ones is brain-derived neurotrophic growth factor, which is known as PDNF. And we looked at a bunch of other molecules too, but in general, these molecules are just good for improving brain health. And some of them have shown an association with respect to uh, doing exercise. So doing exercise actually increases the levels of these molecules, which is again, good for motor learning and forming motor memories and improving brain health. In addition to that, we also looked at neuroimaging measures. Uh, we looked at cortical activation as measured by functional near infrared spectroscopy, which is basically a tool that measures changes in brain oxygen so it basically looks at how the brain increases its uptake of oxygenated hemoglobin depending on whatever task uh, someone's doing and then which areas of the brain are actually picking up that oxygenated hemoglobin. As far as EEG is concerned, EEG is used for measuring uh, what we call as event-related potentials, which are basically, these are all time domain-related factors that can be used for studying uh, cognitive processes and information processing. So they look at different things collectively. If you look at corticomotor excitability, molecular markers, NIRS, uh, EEG, they look at different components of neuroplasticity. Since neuroplasticity is really a big word and it encompasses all these different processes. So yes, there are they are all different processes, so to speak, and change in one domain would also give us information about what's going on, maybe in a certain area or in a certain pathway. So when you think about these molecular markers, like the BDNF, for example, or the brain-derived neurotrophic factor, there's a lot of exciting information in that field, which says, again, in terms of if you have a polymorphism or a change in the genetic structure in that particular molecule in some people, 
they recover differently from the others. And what's very interesting again for us is that the distribution of the people with this genetic variant differs depending on where you are from the world. So if you're from Southeast Asia, people in that region seem to have a lot more of the polymorphism. Whereas when you come to the US and other places, that rate is pretty lower. So it's also very important for us to be also know, to understand better these factors because we see clients of so many different ethnicities and maybe they can give us some clues about why a particular client is not improving. And if we have some idea about, about ethnicity itself that, oh, okay, this, if this person hails from this particular area originally, maybe this is a reason why you know, the recovery is different. And therefore the, the strategy that I'm using or the intervention that I use as a clinician to help rehabilitate this person might have to change. So that's the importance of some of these factors. I mean, we are, it's, it's a pretty exciting time to be in neurorehabilitation and neuroplasticity because you're turning into newer avenues and looking into areas that hitherto were not looked at or we did not know that they were important. So now there is an increasing realization that we have to start doing this. All with the goal of moving towards, you know, for the lack of a better word, I can say precision rehabilitation. I know we throw this term around too much, but what it means is, how can we better design rehabilitation interventions and programs to our clients, which will, which are suited to the unique needs of every client? For our listeners who haven't read this article or aren't as familiar with BDNF, I think what you were implying to Dr. S about the ethnicities is that not everyone responds to BDNF the same way, correct? That some people might actually show a decline or won't motor learn as well in terms of their BDNF amount. Am I correct in saying that's what you're referring to in regards to the ethnicities? I just want to say the response to exercise will be different because the amount of BDNF we have is the same. But when you think about the procedure, BDNF goes down and attaches to certain markers. And that's how the whole process comes in the cascade. But when you have this change in the genetic structure, there's not as much attachment. And the amount of BDNF we have is also slightly lower downstream. So what you're saying is correct, but I just want to make this, it, it's a finer technical point. So just to clear, and how you learn and the expression of the memory and the neuroplasticity that comes is slightly different. I mean, I don't want to get too technical, but the change we see or, or the improvement in the performance we see is slightly different in the clients, depending on whether they have this polymorphism or not. Like some of them will recover to a lower extent compared to the others. You also measured motor learning and performance. So you're looking at behavioral markers as well as neuroplasticity markers. Why is it important to look at both? See, it's very interesting that when we look at neuroplasticity, we can have good plasticity or bad plasticity. When, say, for example, you have a stroke and you know that that side of the brain is not responding anymore. An example of good plasticity would be the areas in the same side, the same side of the lesion is not responding to it as compared to having greater activation on the opposite side of the injury which might actually be not allowing some of this recovery to come by. And an example of bad plasticity would be, for example, when you have an amputation, because when people still still talk about phantom limb pain, so we have that kind of maladaptive plasticity that we call about, is, which is still making them experience that kind of pain. So plasticity is one thing that's what we were interested to look at. But again, when we talk about behavior, behavior is what is happening downstream. Plasticity is what changes going on. A lot of time we talk about plasticity more at the brain and, you know, some a little bit downstream. Behavior reflects about what is happening downstream. And when we look at behavior, you might have improvement in behavior with no change in plasticity or change in plasticity with no change in behavior or vice versa. So it's a combination. We can have all four boxes. And even to look at behavior, it is essential for us to see 
at least from an upper extremity point of view, largely, and even from the lower extremity point of view, how are people recovering? Are we looking at the ability that someone is able to reach better or walk better? Or are we looking at how are they walking and how are they reaching? Patients can walk better by using circumductory gait or using other compensations. If the patient is very, very largely affected, and if that's the way they're going to be able to do, that's the only way they can do it, fine. I don't think it's as a problem. But if we have a chance at improving their capacity to try avoiding it, try normalizing our pattern of gait, try normalizing the fact that you don't have to use your trunk to, over, to overcome those limitations in your elbow to reach for a bottle, I think we need to promote that. So it's very essential for us to not just, and I believe this, and I know Dr. Anjali agrees with me to a certain extent, that we don't need to only see about how the recovery is happening, whether they're doing better or not, but also how well or what kind of patterns they're using, which is what some of the behavioral measures help us understand that. Are you getting faster at doing the stuff? Are you getting better? Is that making a change in your daily life on how you're able to do? Dr. Angelique, can you explain transcranial magnetic stimulation and how it measures corticomotor excitability? TMS, or transcranial magnetic stimulation, is a non-invasive technique where a coil is placed over the scalp to generate a magnetic field. This magnetic field creates an electrical current that flows through the targeted area, which is usually the motor cortex. When the intensity is above threshold, which means it's above the minimum current that's required to produce a descending volley in the corticospinal tract, um, we record what's known as motor evoked potential via electromyography or EMG over the muscle of interest. In simple terms, think about someone who is actually keeping a coil on your head and is making your muscle move without you trying to do anything. That's basically the most easiest way, and that's how I explain it to my participants in research. In terms of how this tool helps us in measuring corticomotor excitability, we get the motor reward potential, which is recorded via EMG, as I was saying earlier. And we record these motor reward potentials over a series of different uh, stimulus intensities from low to high. And we quantify the amplitude of that potential. And then we generate what's known as a stimulus response curve. So that tells us uh, what's the excitability of the corticomotor pathways. To simplify it, if you are looking at someone before and after, let's say someone's undergoing some kind of walking rehabilitation, and you're looking at these motor reward potentials in their leg muscles, you want these motor reward potentials to become, become bigger. So you want the amplitudes to increase after therapy, which means that your therapy is truly causing a change in neuroplasticity in addition to other clinical outcomes such as gait speed. Can you briefly share your findings from this detailed review? We included 16 studies in this review, and we found that most studies had incorporated moderate to vigorous um, intensity exercise, but the strongest evidence was found from studies that incorporated vigorous um, intensity interval-based exercise. So overall, at least 20 minutes of vigorous interval-based exercise on a treadmill or a stepper seemed to be promising to induce changes in some neuroplasticity parameters. Basically, we had to do a lot of cutting through the noise. To find the signal, as I can say, there was it's it's not it's not a clean field. Everyone's found different things, and you know there is a lot of noise around, as we can call. But what we want to say is, what is the main message we can take out of it? And I think Dr. Anjali did a great job at giving the main message. And I mean, the only thing I would add is, don't be afraid to exercise your patients if you can, and have the facilities to do that. And I think everybody should do it. It's good for us. What is aerobic exercise priming, and how does it facilitate neural recovery? Priming is actually a non-conscious process where exposure to one stimulus facilitates the response to another stimulus. 
So think of, you know, if you're just sitting in your car, listening to the title song from Game of Thrones, and you just start thinking about all the characters in those different episodes, or there are, there are different studies which have actually showed that if individuals go to wine shop and they listen to uh, French music, they actually tend to buy French wine more. And if they listen to German music, the sales of German wine increased. So it's a non-conscious process and we still don't know what the exact mechanisms are. So over the last 10 years, this field that's originally, this definition, which is originally based in psychology has been adapted in rehabilitation. As Dr. S was mentioning earlier, we often see that our conventional rehabilitation interventions, despite everything we do, we are patients don't reach complete potential or they're not able to achieve their function. So in an effort to improve their uh, function and uh, neuroplasticity, aerobic exercise can be used as a primer. So it's just an example where aerobic exercise can be used to boost the response of any add-on therapy. It could be anything really. You can just imagine someone doing about 20 to 30 minutes of aerobic exercise and then doing constraint induced movement therapy or aerobic exercise on a bike followed by sit to stand or lower extremity strengthening. So it doesn't have to be specific to a certain intervention. The entire point is just doing this 20 to 30 minute exercise bout creates certain changes in different processes and we are still trying to understand more about it, which can actually improve the response to that subsequent intervention that one would receive. I would just like to add, we all use priming unconsciously in our life. How many times have we gone to a gym? What's the kind of music that's played in the gym? It's fast and peppy. Nobody plays a slow music. And that fast and peppy, no matter how tired we are, we do feel motivated to do better and work out more in the gym. So that's the simple example of priming which we're doing in our daily life. You play slow, melancholic music. You obviously don't want to be working at that high intensity that you can work at. Just to give an example, we're doing it unconsciously. We might be doing it in our clinics unconsciously, but we need to start doing it more consciously. There are other types of priming too. There is stimulation-based priming, sensory-based priming. This is just one example of priming. Prior to this systematic review, what was the general knowledge around aerobic exercise priming? Generally, it is known that exercise priming has merit in eliciting changes in uh, motor learning as well as corticomotor excitability in healthy individuals. Like I was saying earlier, this concept is relatively new because aerobic exercise has been used increasingly to improve cognitive function, especially in those with dementia or you know mild cognitive impairment. However, over the last 10 years, uh, researchers have started thinking that aerobic exercise may have potential to increase. Uh, cause change in movement or motor learning. So a lot of research actually started in uh, healthy individuals. So there are several studies in healthy individuals and there are uh, some reviews too, which show that actually aerobic exercise is effective as a primer, especially acute aerobic exercise. Most of these studies do say that we want to see how these effects will translate to people with neurological disorders. So collectively, I was still unknown if uh, individuals with stroke, we don't know how they're going to respond to this exercise priming. So that was the general knowledge in the field, so to speak. In addition to that, the relationship between all these different neuroplasticity parameters and behavioral outcomes are not really clear. So we don't know if changes in one would translate to changes in uh, another domain. One of your exclusion criteria included studies that incorporated greater than one session of aerobic exercise. Can you speak more about this and the decision behind the exclusion? We were looking at acute effects. So the word acute means we want to see a single session because when you start incorporating multiple sessions, we might see carryover effects which we wanted to avoid. Cumulatively, something improves, something changes. Because of the single effects we're getting on BDNF that we saw, 
we might have that already change your memory from a second day or change your performance in a second day. Maybe not at a performance level, but at a subclinical level, we might want to see that. We didn't want those effects to confound our results. We wanted to keep it quite clean and we wanted to see acutely what happens if we started. I mean, you have to start somewhere. So we decided let's start with one session, then let's, then let's look at other factors. There aren't many studies that have looked at chronic exercise priming. So if we were to go that route, we would definitely not find many studies that would fit into our inclusion criteria. So we decided we from the field, we knew that there were some studies that had done acute exercise priming, so we decided to synthesize those studies. Can you speak to the pros and cons of using high-intensity training versus moderate-intensity exercise in the stroke population? HIIT, or HIT, is really hot in the field right now. Overall, HIT can achieve in uh, obtaining higher sustained intensities and lower rates of perceived exertion, which clinicians are familiar with, or uh, which we call the RPE, or using the modified box scale or the box scale. So with HIT, it has been found that these rates of perceived exertion are actually lower, even though these individuals are exercising at higher intensities, but they have these active recovery bouts where they're actually exercising at a lower intensity. So it's thought that that may account for the lower perceived exertion. Other benefits relating to HIT would be improvements in clinical outcomes, such as gait speed, functional capacity, aerobic capacity. I would encourage the listener to read a recent paper by Pierce Boyne and his group that was published in JAMA Neurology, where they actually compared HIT and moderate intensity exercise in people with stroke. And they found that at least 12 weeks of HIT uh, training with HIT uh, elicits improvements in uh, several domains. In addition to that, HIT may also elicit cardiovascular benefits compared to moderate exercise. However, this has not been done in people with stroke, but we know this from other populations, such as individuals with cardiac failure. So we know that it does have improvements in cardiovascular outcomes, but we still don't know about these comparisons with moderate intensity exercise. For the most part, I would say there are pros for HIT. In terms of cons, the only thing that I can think about is that HIT may not be suitable for individuals who are on the lower end of the recovery spectrum. So individuals who are mostly like having a subacute stroke and still not being able to have a good walking speed. So anywhere, again, this is just from the top of my head. So a lower walking speed around 0.2, 0.3 meters per second. Um, I think they may not be able to do a fast paced hit program. So they could likely start with a moderate intensity protocol and then progress to hit once they are a little faster in their gait speeds. Word of caution that if a person is also having like a concomitant cardiovascular condition, then maybe we need to have a letter of clearance from the physician as well, so that we want to make sure because, you know, sometimes, as Dr. Anjali said, we don't understand the cardiovascular implications very well completely. So maybe a letter of clearance of medical clearance from the treating physician might be a good thing so that we're not doing something that, you know, we may not realize is not supposed to be done. Sometimes, you know, when we they see multiple providers and information doesn't get passed on very well. So that would just be a small point of caution. It does not just limit it to stroke. I know we're talking about the stroke SIG here, but, mm-hmm. you know, our clinicians look at more. There was a session, I think a couple of years, I don't remember if it's last year or year before that in CSM, which said that even in MS, you know, we would think this fatigue and these other points, but as one of our colleagues was mentioning that the research is suggesting that we need to be working them at higher intensities. We shouldn't be afraid. So the effects of hate are not just limited to, you know, I want to say stroke, but there's wider applicability in other conditions as well. I would like to add that there aren't enough safety studies for HIT in people with stroke. More importantly, large-scale randomized control trials, which are actually evaluating safety. From our smaller size studies, we have seen that HIT doesn't cause a lot of adverse effects. Uh, however, we don't have these large studies that can, uh, you know, with which we can safely say that HIT is safe. 
In the clinic, how important is doing a graded exercise test to determine the intensity of the aerobic exercise? So we know clinicians are busy and they have an entire caseload, so it might not be possible to do a maximal uh, exercise test. However, I would still recommend doing at least a six-minute walk test to establish baseline functional capacity. And there are all these regression equations out there which can be used to estimate, for example, peak power from the six-minute walk distance that can be used while determining exercise intensity. And if the clinician still does not have time to do a six-minute walk test, there's a two-minute walk test. So at least do one of the other tests just to get a baseline idea about how your participant is doing and uh, how are they going to likely respond uh, to an exercise intervention. You make some recommendations for exercise priming studies in stroke. What are they and what further research might you be working on in this topic? For future studies that are going to do exercise priming, I would recommend that they do exercise testing or to determine their exercise intensity. In our review, we found that not all studies reported the actual exercise intensities. So for example, if they were choosing an exercise intensity which corresponded to 60% of heart rate max, we don't know if their, if their participants actually did the exercise at 60% heart rate max. And this is important because people with stroke oftentimes have lowered exercise capacities and may not be able to actually reach their target heart rate. It's important to report this so we actually know what was the actual exercise intensity that these participants exercised at and you know, make further recommendations. In addition to that, I would suggest for future exercise priming studies, including one outcome from each domain. So having one outcome from corticomotor excitability, one outcome from the molecular markers, and one um, outcome from motor learning or behavioral measures would help in uh, actually finding if changes in one domain are seen and changes in another domain. Completely, she, she hit the nail on the head. But even when we are selecting these domains, we need to have enough done on a single with a single outcome, that, that is one of the reasons what it precluded us from conducting a meta-analysis, because we, if we were to do a meta-analysis, we could have come up with some sort of summary effect size or something about that summated and say, you know, this is how much change we see over the variability, you know, because, you know, effect sizes are always done over the standard deviations. And we can talk about the variability and how much of an effect do we actually see. You know, in physical therapy, we have lots of measures. Everybody has their own choice. People do what they feel is right. And that's great. That's a great thing. We are, we are, we are, we are a very free field. When we start talking about synthesis of literatures and things of that sort, maybe this is more of an academic interest thing I'm saying. But if people start using the same outcomes, we start having some sort of, I would say, guidelines or measures to say, I know we all we have established guidelines to say these are all great. But out of that, if we can come up with some sort of consensus choice to say, hey, maybe, you know, when you're doing this, as Dr. Anjali said, use this measure, this measure, this measure, do what else you want. But if you include that one particular measure, future studies can also help us to do meta-analyses and, you know, give stronger levels of evidence to what we are seeing. We all understand clinicians are busy. Not everybody has the time and or the interest to be able to get involved in research. But from our side, how we can better help them. Because we only see very few clients. It's, you know, our clinician friends and colleagues who see a lot more of the clients and help them. So in order to help better translate these findings into the clinic, it'll help people like Dr. Anjali and me, if we have these sort of defined measures, well-defined measures and, you know, standardized measures across fields that we can do a better job. Coming back to the priming, what you want to see within the research, I did find that really interesting that not all of them looked at, like, you know, actually found their heart rate maximum, especially for claiming that they're in the vigorous range or moderate vigorous range. Dr. Angela, you stated that you would love to see a study looking at testing each of these domains. 
do you feel that one area would most benefit our understanding of aerobic exercise priming and what it could do for stroke rehab? Or are they all just as beneficial? I think there are a lot of areas that still need to be worked on, considering that this is relatively recent. I would say that we still need a lot of research before making that determination. However, I would think that doing more studies with uh, these domains would be helpful if they do multiple outcomes, like I was mentioning earlier, and perhaps using vigorous exercise intensities or interval-based exercise in order to make sure you're at, you're at least having your participants reach a certain target heart rate because some of the studies that we included used low intensity exercise. And from what we observed, low to moderate intensity does not seem to have that much effect on these outcomes. So perhaps having more evidence for doing vigorous intensity exercise would be an area that I would like to see more research on. For the clinician who wants to incorporate this research now, what recommendations do you have for exercise priming in the clinic? So if a clinician wants his or her patient, if they're working on a patient and if they are going to do some kind of intervention, and like I was mentioning earlier, it could be something as hand exercises or leg strengthening, I would say just have this patient do 20 to 30 minutes of exercise. It could be even just 20 minutes. Ideally, uh, it, it appears that moderate to vigorous intensity exercise would be better. So have them do this exercise, make sure they are you know, safe and you rule out all these different uh, contraindications to exercise and then put them on a treadmill or a recumbent stepper and have them do that exercise for about 20, 25 minutes and then do your intervention. I would definitely think that that might boost the response to whichever intervention they are using. And if this is done cumulatively, I would think that these improvements would just facilitate more long-term connectivity or long-term synaptic plasticity, like how Dr. S was mentioning earlier. If there's any reason why your client cannot, you cannot be on a treadmill or you cannot be on a recumbent stepper, at least something like arm or ergometry or like a simple cycle or something of that sort, basically anything that can help you get that intensity, do something like don't do, don't not use it. We had this whole debate about moderate versus high intensity. High intensity is great. But again, from a caution point of view, as we have said, we've discussed this, you know, we don't know. So my thing is do something, please don't leave it out. It's like a simple resource. We all have bikes. We all have arm ergometers. We all have treadmills. We all have steppers in our clinics. So it's just an additional resource you're using. And that's part of therapy, which we might already be doing. So it's just to be able to think that how we are scheduling these exercises and how we develop this program and which is done first versus which is done second. This might be something that helps us. Maybe, you know, walking vigorously can be part of gait training that we do and we go on to do something else. We come up with all of these beautiful combinations for our clients. Sometimes we just don't have the time to be able to do that. So to all my, you know, dear clinician colleagues and friends, I would say just, you know, think of it in better ways and how you can use these bag of tricks to help us optimize the recovery that we want to see in all our clients. Do you feel the findings of this review are substantial enough to help motivate our patients to participate in moderate vigorous activity before their next activities? And if so, how do we share this with our patients? As of now, I don't think the findings are substantial because like Dr. S was mentioning, we did not do a meta-analysis. So we really don't have, we do report effect sizes, but we don't look at experimental versus control comparisons because all the studies had different control conditions. Some of them did not even have a control condition. So I would say this review is a starting point for future studies. In terms of recommendations, I would stick to what I mentioned earlier. For a patient who wants to take a message from this review, I would just say, try to exercise for about 20 to 30 minutes before you do any kind of, could be walking, could be your arm exercises, 
could be squatting, could be anything. But if you do this exercise, like Dr. S was mentioning, it could even be an upper extremity exercise, but we really want their heart rates to go up because only if their heart rates are in a moderate to vigorous intensity range, you can actually expect some kind of benefit uh, or carryover from the priming bout. I second completely what Dr. Anjali is saying, you know, very safely. And there's actually even studies now that have used like, you know, gaming kind of interventions like the V or the Kinect that you can do. And, you know, you play these games and it gets the heart rate up in the people and people get, you know, nice and excited. So any kind of thing that helps you to, to achieve that intensity, you know, that moderate to vigorous intensity that we've been talking about, more on the vigorous side, 20 to 30 minutes of that, then that is going to help hopefully give you better results. We cannot definitively say because as she said, we don't have a meta-analysis. And again, one meta-analysis doesn't answer the question or one systematic review doesn't answer the question. It's You've got to do a series of studies and replications, you know, which is important in today's world. But if we have two or three or three or, or four or five studies, which are all starting to say, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. And, you know, different methodologies are used. So numbers might be different. But if overall they're saying everything's good, you know, everything's giving a positive effect then we'll be in a better situation to make a more definitive conclusion. You're saying that the findings still aren't substantial enough, but we should still incorporate in the clinic. I guess I also am coming from, how do we tell our patients, hey, I'm making you do this because it may increase your ability to motor learn, or it may increase your brain to adapt and change. Do you feel like it's still, what we're seeing from these reviews is enough to to still say that to our patients as a way to motivate them to participate? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You can definitely say that to your patients and you can incorporate it into your protocols. I don't see why or you would not want to considering, you know, as, as long as you make that, make sure that they are safe to do the exercise, uh, really, it's not an intervention which can be done only in the lab. We really want it to be done in the clinic. So yes, absolutely. However, in terms of is it really effective? We don't have the response to that quite yet. It looks like there would be effects. It seems like the effects are promising, but we just don't know that response yet. And moreover, we don't even know if these responses right now in this review, it's just one exercise session, but our patients come to us for, you know, uh, long-term therapy, especially individuals with stroke or any other neurological disorder. So we don't know if these cumulative sessions of priming may actually cause changes in neuroplasticity. The hope is yes, but we still don't have a definitive answer to that. We know that exercise has, has all these positive benefits. We talk about people feeling more motivated. We talk about more cortisol. We feel about people being happy. Well, that just means that the person's going to be, you know, a better participant and more actively involved in therapy. And through the session, if the patient's able to do better, the clinician then can tell the patient, and listen, last time we met, you did so much. Today, see, you can go a little extra. Or you're doing much better. You're doing the same thing in less time. So that can be the, the participant himself can feel and see if there are changes within himself or herself, and that can be good enough for us. We are nowhere near, you know, to make that definitive sort of recommendation out over here. But these are like smaller kinds of things that we might just see with our patients. And even when they're not coming to us for therapy, because I know that insurance does play a big role, you know, and on how many sessions people get, get. But within that, when they're doing in the house or whatever they're doing, when they're not coming to us for therapy, don't just sit at home doing nothing. You can just go out for a walk and, you know, at this intensity. And we are today at a time and range where you can monitor your heart rate. You can see how fit you're feeling. We have all of these nice devices which are sitting in our phones or on our wrists. And we can make use of some of those things we have at home so that, you know, we can tend to help translate some of the findings directly to the clinic and beyond the clinic. I mean, even at home, when the clients are sitting, when our clients are there, when they're doing this, this can be something we can help them.
Anything else you would like to share that you learned from this review or you feel is important for clinicians working with this population to know? What we learned was that we saw what, what amount of promise this field holds and how encouraged we were that, you know, this question, because you can either have a positive or a negative answer. And we found a positive answer in this field. And it's something that, you know, which interests both of us and which we know has potential benefits for our patients and, you know, and our clients and as well as our clinician colleagues. So it's something we would like to continue on doing. And we also learn things like including, so we, we didn't use the Pedro scale, which is most commonly used because it's technically used only for RCTs. We did use a, some, we did use another scale. So we saw that there were some kind of implications that were covered, some that were not covered, some points were there, some points were not there. So the quality of the studies was slightly different. It also gives us ideas, you know, as researchers, when we are doing our work or when we write manuscripts on what kind of other points we should take care and what care we should take so that, you know, we, we are better able to convey the information. Sometimes that information is simply not available because journals have word limitations and not everybody has time to put everything else. But how best can we present the information and how best can we give the clinical implications that will really help our patients and as well as help us in sharing some of these findings with our clinician colleagues. I think that was, an, that was an, an, another valuable lesson that we both learned on how to better, you know, be able to design. And it helps us because when we look at all of these things, what people have already done. So when we are planning our future studies, we can say, oh, we know that's already been done. That's got good evidence. So we can use it. Or maybe let's not use that technique because that did not have as much evidence. So it helps us from, you know, from our parts to be better researchers ourselves also on how can we better design studies to, to get more precise questions that can give us better answers. Thank you, Dr. Angeli and Dr. S for being a part of this podcast and doing this research and work. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to what else comes from your guys' laboratories and hope to have you again on the podcast soon once those come out as well. Thank you so much for having us. I just want to again reiterate what an honor it has been for us. Thank you so much.